Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Earnings season is starting with expectations for a 9% year-over-year contraction in Q2 earnings. When can investors expect an earnings recovery and how is the market preparing for it? Yuri Ann Timmer, Director of Global Macro, joins the show today to unpack the earnings story and share what else is currently on his radar. Yurian notes that the market is looking past the current earnings contraction and focusing on the prospect of an earnings recovery next year, betting on a soft landing. Looking at the importance of real rates in driving the market, Yurian analyzes the impact of real rates on gold and Bitcoin and explains how rising real rates make it challenging for gold to thrive. Regarding Bitcoin, Yurian explains how its use case still lies in being a digital store of value, but how its short-term upside may be limited by the current real rate environment. Yurian also touches on the implications of labor unrest in the US and Canada on inflationary pressures, explores the potential for investing in Asia, and shares his thoughts on the status of the Magnificent Seven stocks. This podcast was recorded on July 10th, 2023. As per usual, Yurian will be sharing some charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Let's go straight into sort of what we're looking at this week. The earnings story seems to have absolutely been, I think you call it sort of the three-legged stool, but it seems to be the only thing that we're talking about these days because earnings countdown is, it's on, it's days away here. Yes, it is. Uh, And if we go to slide seven... And the slide seven that Yurian is referring to is the chart earnings estimate progression, which he tweeted on July 13th. And again, his Twitter is at Timmer Fidelity. Now we can see that earnings season is beginning this week. Uh, it'll come in with, with a trickle and then the next few weeks, uh, it'll be much, much busier. Uh, but you can see there, you know, that black line is the, the estimate for the growth rate, year over year growth rate for Q2 earnings. Uh, and you can see that they're expected to be down 9% from a year ago. So earnings are still contracting, which is something we know. And the market uh, is trying to look past. Um, and you can see that red line was Q1. And Q1 set up exactly the same way as Q2. Uh, and but, the, but in Q1, we had a really actually strong earnings season where that minus 8% at the beginning of earnings season, well, you know, ended up at only minus 3%. So we'll see if this uh, particular quarter uh, does a repeat. But, you know, to your point, uh, the market, you know, a bull market rests on several pillars, right? You have earnings, you have liquidity or the interest rate environment. Obviously, the Federal Reserve or monetary policy in general plays a big role in that. Uh, you have valuation, of course, and you have sentiment, which sentiment and valuation are almost the same thing. Because they are they're 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 reflection of of investor appetites and you know the backdrop for this cycle for the last few months as we've talked about is that you know the liquidity side the market's been wrongfully or wrongly betting that uh, the Fed would pivot I mean it was thinking that six months ago nine months ago and uh, we're we're actually seeing the opposite of that 
Um, the sentiment backdrop is pretty favorable. You know, the consensus has been punished this year because generally investors have been waiting for that other shoe to drop. You know, last year was the valuation side of, of, the, of the bear market, the interest rate reset. And then this year, I think the consensus has been on the basis of the inverted yield curve, et cetera, that the earnings shoe would be the next to drop. And I think that has kept a lot of investors on the sidelines. And so that sentiment pillar, I think, is pretty favorable. Um, and then we have earnings as sort of the tiebreaker, right? So I, I, I've got actually a kind of an eye-opening chart if we go to slide five. That slide is equity valuation, which Urian tweeted on July 12th. And over the past year and a half, we've talked about this, that you know during an interest rate tightening cycle, uh, valuations tend to kind of pivot on where rates are heading. And so in this chart, I show the PE ratio in the gray line. And then the other two lines are models based on real rates and on the two-year yield, which is a good proxy for where the Fed is expected to go. And for a while, until the bottom last October, all those lines were perfectly in sync. But as you can see, it's kind of like the jaws are have opened, right? So the market is moving on from the Fed saying, you know what? Yeah, I know rates are still going up and that the Fed's not going to pivot anytime soon, but we're, 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 we're kind of moving on from there. We're going to look at earnings and, and at the, um, and at the prospect of an earnings recovery next year. And so that puts the onus on earnings. And that's why I think earnings season is so important. And uh, before I turn it back over, if we just go to slide 22 for a moment. Slide 22 for us is the chart earnings and valuation tweeted on July 13th. The market is, is betting on a soft landing. I mean, there, there really is no question about it, right? Last year, earnings grew 50%, which is an enormous number, but part of that was the base effects from the pandemic and the lockdowns you know, ending. This year so far, earnings are expected to decline by only 3%, which is very, very modest. And then next year, they're expected to grow by 11%. So if the consensus is right, and the consensus is by no means always right, um, if that's correct, then that would be a soft landing. And you can see in this chart, you see the earnings estimates there in the upper right. You can see margins uh, stabilizing in the bottom right. And so this scenario needs to pan out for the market to really have a leg to stand on, because if it's not coming from the liquidity side, uh, you know, just that sentiment pillar is only going to take you so far. You really need the fundamentals, and that's going to come from earnings. Right. It's it's so interesting to sort of when we've had these discussions with this whole audience that you're speaking to in the last sort of three weeks, it sounds like you've said almost, almost. And I'm wondering if it's any closer right now, or we actually need this week of data to sort of come through first. And then, I mean, is that earnings is a big piece of it, but it's also obviously all this data. To what extent are we waiting on this week? Yeah, it, it, it's a great way to characterize it. It has been this almost thing, right? Because you think about it, we are we are now a year and a half into this cycle, right? So last year, the market peaked early January. I remember we were on, on the show yes. and Russia had just invaded Ukraine. And we were like, okay, now we have something new to talk about. And uh, that started a 28% bear market for the S&P 500, about a 33% drawdown in the PE. Uh, and so far, the low you know, looks like a good low from last October. 
But the markets, for the most part, been in limbo since then. So if we if we look at slide three here for a moment. Now taking a look at market leadership tweeted on July 14th. Obviously, we know about the mega cap leadership, you know, the whole AI theme, the FANG stocks. And indeed, if you look at the top 10 largest stocks, which is the gray line, you see a massive rally there off of uh, a low earlier this year. Um, and you're almost back to the old highs there. Uh, but the rest of the market has lagged behind. So the bottom 490 um, is still kind of in this range. And the good news is, is that top 10 is starting to pull the rest of the market higher. But if we go to slide two, my, my favorite kind of equity chart. And that one is S&P 500 Equal Weighted Index, tweeted on July 12th. Uh, is the S&P 500 equal weighted index. Um, uh, so normally yes. the index is cap weighted, but you know you have you know Apple and Microsoft are like 14% of the index, right? So <clears throat> you get a lot of skew from these mega caps. So this is equal weighted and you can see that the market basically has been in limbo for the last year since that June momentum low. But we're at the top of the range. Those those horizontal lines are what we call Fibonacci uh, bands, and I think it's a good way to kind of characterize this range that we're that we're in. And you can tell the market has been strong as of late, and it feels like it wants to declare itself. And and I think that makes a lot of sense because a year and a half in, you know, for a year and a half the market has not gone up. Let's put it that way. And the natural tendency is for the market to go up over time. I mean, not all the time, but over the long term, it does. So it's kind of unnatural for the market to be not going up for a year and a half. So it's understandable that the market's getting impatient and to say, OK, you know, uh, when, you know, the recession is not going to happen or it's not going to happen anytime soon. So we're moving on. We're looking at this earnings recovery, which is why earnings season is so important. But again it's it's it hasn't happened yet like we we do not have we cannot declare victory yet not that we ever can of course in this business and the flying in the ointment right now if we go to slide one and you're in slide one is five-year treasury yield which he tweeted on july 10th is on the liquidity side you know it's on the rate side i mean the fed is meeting later this month, uh, is very likely to raise rates again. I think the odds are about 90% that it will. The terminal rate, which is where the Fed is expected to end the cycle, is now up to about 5.43%. So the Fed is expected to, you know, to continue um, and then to not pivot very quickly after that. Um, and again, that's a moving target. It's a snapshot in time. It's always changing. But you look at this chart, you know, if this was a stock chart, it would be really bullish, but it's a chart of the five-year yield, and that's not a good chart. That five-year yield is is basically retesting the old highs, and if you look at those orange bands there, that's what we call a wedge or a continuation pattern, and it looks like yields are actually breaking out, and in the bottom panel, I showed the real five-year, so the that, that's for the tips yield. Um, so that's the nominal five-year minus the inflation expectations um, embedded in the tips market. That is making a new high for the cycle. So again, if we look at earnings, liquidity, and valuation slash sentiment, uh, earnings, you know, the, the market is betting on an earnings recovery, and, and maybe it gets it, and we'll know more in the next few weeks. But the liquidity side is not going in the direction you want 
uh, we would want because history shows that when the market is looking past an earnings valley and, it, and it's only a modest valley at this point, uh, it really needs easier monetary conditions to get it there. And we're not seeing that. So uh, even after all the weeks that we've been talking about the markets being in kind of the state of purgatory, uh, we, we're still there, unfortunately. So, so where do you fit the 60-40 in here? I mean, is it a good moment to talk about that? Or, or in fact, is it more of an equity focus at this point? I, it, it always depends on where you're sort of coming from. But the 60-40 allows you to talk coming from a couple of places. Yeah. So I, I think, and let's tee up slide 14. That slide is nominal yields and inflation expectations, which Urian tweeted on July 10th. So the, 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 the 60-40 obviously did not work last year, right? Both the 60 and the 40 went down uh, double digits, which is pretty rare. And the combined decline uh, is, is of the order of magnitude that we haven't seen in, in many decades. Uh, but that, that I think, is the exception rather than the rule. Um, and what we see now is, so I showed the five-year yield before. This is the 10-year yield. 10 years at 40, today 401, 402%. Uh, ten year tips the the ten year tips break evens are around two and a quarter. That means that uh, the real yield is almost two percent. So you know in the in the old days when real yields were positive like they are now, but they've been negative for a very long time. Um, you know if you bought the forty in a sixty forty, then even if the forty did not um, protect you against the sixty in a in a drawdown. Uh, which of course is is one of the main reasons to own the 40. But even if that didn't happen, if you got a positive real yield, well, at least you can clip those coupons and and you're getting you know you're putting money in the bank. What happened over the last couple of decades, of course, is that yields went way down, real yields became negative, and so the only thing riding on the 60/40 was that inverse correlation of bonds versus stocks when stocks would have a drawdown event. At least you can you can kind of count on bonds doing well. So you know we don't know, of course, in real time whether bonds will insure against a loss in the stock market if we get that other shoe dropping. But my guess is that we will. That if 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 there really is a recession coming in the next six to twelve months and it knocks down earnings and we're and the consensus is wrong about the earnings recovery scenario. My sense is that you know the Fed at that point would be pivoting and rates would, would come down and you would get that inverse correlation on top of a pretty generous positive real yield. So I, I think there is a good case to be made uh, for the 60-40, uh, even though it didn't work last year. Can you give us a little bit of perspective on what the heck gold has been doing and then also tell us about Bitcoin. I mean, it's been quite extraordinary to watch this story play out. So uh, we can go to slide 11, which shows gold. That's gold and real rates, which he tweeted on July 10th. So, you know, gold uh, is many things to many people. Uh, and a friend of mine once said that there's no fever like gold fever. So uh, <laughs> trying to pin down gold as a single play on a single outcome is, is never possible. But um, I've tested many, many different indicators from price inflation to monetary inflation, from uh, to a lower dollar or a higher dollar. And they all have worked from time to time in explaining what gold has done. 
but by far the most important uh, variable is real rates. So when real rates fall, uh, gold tends to do well, and 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 the and the opposite is true as well. And you can see here there's an 86% correlation between the movements in the price of gold and the tips real rate. And obviously with real rates now moving up, uh, gold doesn't really have that that anchor uh, to, to thrive on, and that's why gold is down modestly. It's only down modestly. It's 19. 29 today. It was close to 2100 a few weeks ago. Uh, so I wouldn't say that that's a huge loss, uh, at least not, not for gold. But, you know, gold needs falling real rates. Uh, and to get that, you need a Fed pivot. And the Fed is is not pivoting, um, uh, at least not yet. Um, I mean, I think there's other things going on with gold. Um, you know, there are talks about the BRIC countries setting up their own gold-backed currency, right. obviously. Global central banks, especially China and Russia, have been uh, stockpiling gold. So, uh, and you know, there's this whole de-dollarization kind of uh, theme that I don't know that I necessarily believe in. I do think the dollar uh, is losing its share of reserves um, into, as a global reserve currency, but that doesn't mean the dollar is not going to play a role. It just might be a slightly lesser role. So, there are other things that are driving gold that are, I think, are very real and valid and are longer term, and including the notion that at some point the Fed may have to repress interest rates just like it did during the 40s if, yeah, if it turns out that, that the interest expense from rising rates and a massive debt burden proves to be too costly. So, th there, there are all these kind of things rumbling around that, that are hard to quantify, but ultimately, I think you need falling real rates, and, and without that, it's hard for gold to really make a, make a stand. And Bitcoin, take us through Bitcoin. There's actually tons of questions coming in, so I want okay, to help you get to that, but I definitely uh, want to hear what you yeah. have to say on the Bitcoin front. So let's go to slide nine. So Slide nine for us is the first of two slides titled Bitcoin Drivers, tweeted on July 11th. Um, I've done a lot of work on this, and of course, we know that Bitcoin is very unique among uh, any asset class, but even among crypto, it's very unique because it has that built-in supply scarcity, uh, which in turn drives kind of its adoption, right? So I, I see Bitcoin as aspirational money, right? And money is three things. It's a unit of account, the medium of exchange, and it's a store of value. And, you know, I, I don't think many people are using Bitcoin to, to buy stuff, but then again, they're not using gold for that either. So gold is really just a store of value. And I think Bitcoin's use case, uh, at least its potential use case in, in our world, in our 6040 world is as a digital gold, as a store of value. Um, so it's interesting. I did the study recently <clears throat> that where I regress uh, the adoption curve, which of course is the primary driver, right? How big is the network getting? And as the network gets bigger, the value of that network uh, grows as well. And that means that the price of Bitcoin goes up. And so I think that's relatively intuitive, but the macro environment of real rates, I think has become a, an important driver as well. And in this chart, you can see that uh, the network size and real rates explain 91% of Bitcoin's move. Um, and you can see here in the chart that Bitcoin is a little bit ahead of the value uh, that's kind of imputed from this model. And I think part of that is Everyone is waiting with bated breath uh, on the potential launch of a, of a spot ETF here in the U.S. And of course, you guys have already already been there, done that. But yeah. but um, but I think there's some there's some kind of uh, there's some enthusiasm about that. 
But I think the real rate part here also is important. So if we go to the next slide. The next slide is the second of the two Bitcoin driver slides, this one showing the internet adoption model. What I've done is I've, I've looked at uh, the, 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 the growth of the network and I've compared it to the growth of other networks so like mobile phones, internet adoption, and we've talked about this in the past. The and then I've overlaid that with two different outcomes for real rates, right? So negative real rates would be a very positive macro backdrop, right? For gold as well as Bitcoin, because that means that you have monetary debasement and you want to store value when that happens. But positive real rates are the opposite, especially at plus 2%, which is where we are now. So when you look at that range of minus two to plus two, and you assume that the Bitcoin's, uh, that Bitcoin's adoption curve will continue to grow along the line of other S-curves historically, you get this band where, you know, in a year or so, we're either at, you know, close to 100 or, or closer to 45,000. And we're already kind of at the bottom of that range, which would be at a plus 2% uh, real rate. So, so I don't see a ton of upside over the near term, just because the real rate story is becoming less favorable but if if the fed does pivot and real rates come down or the 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 adoption curve accelerates for whatever reason maybe because there's a spot etf at some point then you can move you know further into that band which would suggest higher prices but for now um, i think that curve obviously is going from bottom left to upper right so that's good but i think at thirty thousand, uh it's that's probably about as much as we're going to see for the short term Brilliant. Great to get your thoughts on that because it's been a really interesting story. So, so many questions. Uh, we'll go through some of these. So this is a great question on labor because obviously you're looking at labor ultimately from where it is within the economic markets. This is a question on, can you comment on labor unrest in the U.S., also in Canada? Um, will that continue to contribute to inflation, inflation inflationary pressures? Um, I think the short answer is yes. Uh, so we have these long secular trends, um, almost like a like not a tension, but it's like a pendulum swinging um, from rewarding capital holders to rewarding labor. And of course, over the past few decades, it's all been about capital and labor has kind of had to be a price taker, right? So wages did not really keep up, um, and um, and so. So I think the pendulum is clearly swinging away from capital towards labor. Part of that was kind of populism in the political sphere, even under Trump, but under Biden as well. Um, uh, but part of it, of course, is just the, the math of, of labor shortages, right? I mean, during COVID, we lost about almost 3 million baby boomers uh, to, to early retirement. Um, and then, of course, immigration kind of got stopped because borders closed and you had some less favorable immigration uh, you know, policies from the previous administration. So the labor force um, is growing again as people have returned back to the labor force, but but we're short, still short a few million uh, people. And, and there's some pretty, um, um, what do you call it, uh, visible labor uh, disputes going on, like UPS, for instance, which right. I think I think they transport like 3% of GDP every day or something like not an insignificant uh, player. Um, you know, they're, they're holding out for higher wages. And so it's interesting because, you know, during the seventies, when we actually had <clears throat> these, um, we obviously had this big inflation problem and we had 
cost of living adjustments. At that point, at least a fifth, if not a quarter of the labor force was unionized. Now it's only about 6%, but the shortage of labor and maybe you know social media or just the way information is disseminated, um, uh, it, it's almost having a similar effect. So I do think labor is back. And to your question, that has to count towards you know the argument of, of having inflation structurally that is maybe higher than it otherwise would be. And on top of that, of course, you also have deglobalization, uh, reshoring, you know, the chips uh, thing, and uh, companies maybe not feeling so comfortable having their supply chains coming out of China anymore. So you have that as well. And then you have overall just, <clears throat> you know, aging, aging populations um, and this notion that the globalization labor arbitrage from the last few decades has largely played out. So you don't have that excess pool of labor anymore that you can tap into. So overall, I would say that labor <clears throat> will be a driver of structural inflation. The question is, you know, does it bring it to, to only three or is it four? Uh, the Fed's target, of course, is two, two and a half. Maybe at some point the Fed will have to write a white paper and announce it in Jackson Hole that uh, that three is the new two. Like, it seems to me like, uh, that that's a very likely scenario, but it's not one that's likely to happen overnight. Okay, fascinating how that you know might play out in sort of a voluntary picture way. Okay, so there's three questions here, and they're all fascinating. Let's see if we can kind of go through them. So one has to do what is specific discussion on you know are structured notes, for instance, a good alternative to bonds in the current environment. So we'll come maybe we'll do that first. There's a question on the Magnificent Seven, which we can get to in a sec. And then also discussing um, Asian markets and China. But can, can we begin with, you know, that very specific question on structured notes? Uh, that is a very, <clears throat> excuse me, that is a very specific question. Yeah. Um, and I'm not a fixed income expert, so maybe we'll we'll save that for, for the fixed income. Can we income tell us question. coming on later um, in the week? Maybe. <laughs> exactly. But yep. my, my, my experience with structured notes is that sometimes they're a little bit opaque, like you're not really sure what's in them and uh, under what circumstances different calls or puts might be uh, executed. So um, I, I think they can probably make a lot of sense if it's the right structure and they probably have a yield pickup that an investor would, would benefit from. But um, you know, the devil's in the details. And, uh, and, and again, this is from my experience as a, as a bond person many years ago. Uh, but from my experience, it was always like, <clears throat> make sure you know what's in it and make sure <clears throat> what kind of events can trigger um, a corporate action on the bonds. Right. Okay. Fascinating. Um, so, so let's go to, we'll finish with the so-called Magnificent Seven. I don't know who coined that one, but anyway, um, the upside to Asia and China, there, there seems to be, I don't know, there has been for some time a bit of an increasing narrative about stimulus actually coming through in China. It seems to be needed. Whether the government has the same framework in mind, I, I don't know. But what do you think about investing in Asia and specifically China? Yeah, I, I mean, China, I think, the general consensus is that, you know, China, of course, had its big reopening finally this year, the last one to reopen from the lockdowns. Um, <clears throat> and I think a lot of people were expecting some fireworks about the amount of economic activity and the performance in those markets. And I think, generally speaking, it's been disappointing. Um, and maybe that's just a sign that, you know, China is not stimulating the way it used to, like, you know, after the financial crisis, they just built a whole bunch of stuff and that sent 
the price of commodities, you know, booming and, and it kind of restarted the whole global GDP engine. And this time around, it's more of a domestic consumption um, thing. And so it's less felt maybe in other parts of the world. And also, you know, China has a massive amount of debt and, you know, as, as do many other countries, of course, including the U.S., and that it's just harder. You end up pushing on a string if you keep trying to go back to that well. So my, that's kind of my sense. But, you know, China is trading at a 12 multiple. The U.S. is at 19.5. The earnings cycle in, in emerging markets actually looks better than it does for the U.S. So I do like it. And the dollar is coming down a little bit. So I, I think there's many reasons for it um, to outperform. And, and I continue to expect that. But it's been it's been a little bit of a letdown so far. Um, so, and, and yep, sorry. Yeah, no, I was, I was just going to touch on the Magnificent Seven because yeah, I actually what do you think? On that. So slide 20, I know we're running short on time. We're OK. So, yeah. Slide 20 is titled Nifty 50 and was tweeted on July 12th. I've talked about the Nifty 50, so the seven is even more concentrated, but it's just such a fascinating thing. And I just did an update on this. Um, <clears throat> the original Nifty 50 was during the 1970s. So in this chart, I show the real S&P and I show in the bottom panel, the, 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 the valuation premium that the top 50 stocks in the S&P get over the bottom 450. And what you see is that, you know, in 1968, this goes way back, there was a speculative bubble that those were the glamour stocks, you know, the space companies, the tech, the tech companies. And that was all retail kind of speculation, kind of like the meme friends that we had in 21. And that bubble burst. We had a recession in 1970. And at that point, institutions only wanted to buy the stocks they knew were bulletproof that would grow their earnings no matter what. And those were the original Nifty 50. And you can see by the end, which was at the end of the bear market in late 74, uh, the, the Nifty 50 commanded almost a double PE as the rest of the market, a 90% premium. So really remarkable. And then of course you had many, many years where it didn't work. And then we had the tech bubble in 99 and 2000. Uh, and you saw the same thing but that was in a bull market, whereas the first one was in a bear market. Right. And now over the past you know, eight years or so, nine years, we've seen a similar outperformance. But for the most part so far, until recently, that outperformance was completely justified by better earnings. And it was not based on a valuation extreme or a bubble. Now we're at a 44% premium, which is still only half of what we saw in the previous one. So now you are starting to get the PE side uh, because the earnings side is going to count. The bloom is a little bit off the rose, but it's just really interesting that, uh, that, that this is a story that has repeated, even though it's been under totally different circumstances. Fascinating. So yeah, it is certainly not without precedent. Yeah. Correct. We want to thank you so much, Urian, for, for setting us straight on a very important week and for speaking next week. Great. Thank you, Pamela. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.